So welcome to our next episode of Teach Like a Pirate by C-Tech Podcasts. As always, I am Nicole Huff. And I am Sylvia Ellison. And today we're going to look at Ask and Analyze, the A in Pirate. Before, we've gone through our philosophy and the acronym. And um, I think moving from rapport, which is about students, to Ask and Analyze is kind of a, a neat shift. Um, because when we read through the chapter, you're finding that he's actually looking at his process for how he designs lessons he's making his thinking evident yes and i think that's really cool so as we're looking at it um, i find that it's the chapters are getting longer Mm -hmm. and he's um, moving into that practical stage like beyond the theory Um, but i think he's doing it in a way that makes it real for us that it's not everything is perfect but it's everything is movable, it's fixable, and it's a learning opportunity. So Ask and Analyze, I think, is going to be a really interesting chapter for us. I agree. And I like that his Ask and Analyze, you said it's practical, and it is, but it's still broad enough to be mm-hmm. about multiple contents. He's not only asking social studies questions. Yes. He's asking pedagogy questions, and that's something we all are capable of doing. Right. We do want to change our process just a little bit this week. Again, we've been looking at our texts as sacred. And something that makes this text sacred, or any text sacred, is that it is a complex, complicated text that I can have questions about, that I need to discuss in community and see other viewpoints for, and that those viewpoints may complicate my understanding, but may also lead me to a deeper understanding of what I see in the world around me and how this can impact my life. So with that in mind, we're going to kind of walk through several points in the chapter and discuss our views and what we see and how that is present in our own classrooms in order to come to a better understanding of how to ask and analyze our classrooms and lessons. Right. And I think it's interesting at the end of rapport, he established this idea that we should be, our task was to answer the question in kids head, which was, if I've never been successful, how do I know I'm going to be successful in your class? Right. And, mm-hmm. and so if we, if we start just at that premise, um, I think that it's interesting that this chapter is all about asking the right questions in order to get to the right delivery method of information. Right. And his first one, it dives into this idea of creativity and that a lot of people say that Dave Burgess is, is just very creative and that's how he can have all these wonderful things in his classroom. And I think his quote that really stands out though is on page 35 in the middle. It says that creative ideas don't come out of the blue. They come from engaging in the creative process. Mm-hmm. I know, I think it's interesting when I delve into any kind of craft, whether it be with my daughter, my daughter-in-law or a, a friend, I do much better when I'm with them than I've been by myself. When I'm by myself, I'm not creative at all. I I feel bland, right? Because the juices just aren't there. But when I'm with somebody, I'm having conversation or I'm working with them, Mm -hmm. I get a lot more um, risky, right? (laughs) I take a lot more chances. I'm willing to step outside of my comfort zone. And I think that's what he's saying here, that my process for engaging and to get to creativity is working with others. And so often that is what so many of us need. I think back to a conversation we were having about technology and that you can host an event in person where people will figure out how to participate in Twitter and get ideas and learn and host a Twitter chat and see what that's all about. But then when they are not 
sitting in that room with you, mm-hmm. then they don't even participate in some of the chats they already know about. And why? Well, because I, I didn't have Sylvia there to help me and to tell me I was right. doing the right thing and make sure I was in the right characters. And I, often we do better when we do our work together. Right. So I thought that was interesting. Um, and then I loved just in this chapter alone, he does so many things that really want you to continue to read. Like mm-hmm. he is almost modeling the creativity, the the hooks, mm-hmm. the attention getters in his writing that I could see him oh. doing in his classroom. Right? He did that in that six word story and yes. told us he was oh. doing it and told us exactly how he was doing it. And then therefore delayed your getting to know what the six words were even longer. And then, uh, so absolutely, he was building that suspense and the English teacher in me, reading teacher in me, reading coach, librarian, knew exactly what he was doing the whole time. And I was and kind I of snickering. The whole time. Of course. And I was kind of snickering to myself that he was doing this to me and I was falling for it. And the thing is, I love a good story. And so yes. do our kids. So it's interesting. That's one of the first sections we're going to talk about. And the six words, which we are not delaying gratification here, um, is... As well, especially as Dave Burgess did, but it's easy for you, you're creative. And I think it's interesting how he he refers to that. I think sometimes we hear that comment, um, it's easy for you, technology is easy, you're young. We hear it's easy for you, you're blank. And you just fill in the blank with it, whatever they're trying to say. Mm -hmm. And I love his response to that. And I'm sure his response was, the volcano is building, right? Mm -hmm. Outside, very professional. And I think in here, what I find... Most fascinating is the two, he kind of divides into, it's easy for you. How many times do our students think that something is easy for us, right? Like, oh, that math problem is easy for you. You're smart. Right. And then I realize all of the... All the work that goes into it. I used to say, and this I stole from my mother as well. She used to say, it's not about being smart. It's about getting smart. Right. It's a process. So... No one just looks at a synthesis question of a whole novel plus some primary source documents that is based on a whole bunch of reading and you're going to write an essay. Nobody just looks at that and knows the answer. Right. But there are plenty of kids who turn in the essay. And they turn in the essay not because the answer just came to them and they could write it, but because they did a whole bunch of things to get to that essay. They broke right. it down and they read and underlined and they circled here and they took notes there and they looked up further information and they reread and they drew a picture. And, they, and Kylene Beers wrote about that in her book, When Kids Can't Read What Teachers Can Do. Oh, what a great book. She talks about these three kids and giving them a very difficult poem and telling them to read it. And then she asks them what they did to make it make sense. And the first kid goes on and on about how it was difficult. And so they read and reread and read parts and broke things down and defined words in the margin and and all that. And the second kid was like, oh, I should have defined more words. But you know what? I... I started doing that and then realized that most of it was, it's the poem Huswifery, which I don't really know. But she said, I realized that most of it was about a spinning wheel. So I started drawing a picture and labeling the parts. And the first girl's like, oh my God, I so should have done that. And they're building off of each other when the third kid chimes in and is like, you didn't say to do any of that. You just said to read it. Right. I hate when teachers do that, tell you to read something it doesn't make any sense. I read it. It didn't make any sense. You didn't say to do any of that stuff. What was I supposed to do? It didn't make any sense. Which I think is so cool about this chapter, Ask and Analyzes, but I think... He doesn't as, see the process. Right. She did, right. And I think um, 
a lot of times our students, even our teachers, I think, struggle with this. I always find that as a writing coach, my English teachers struggle the most with how to teach writing because they never struggled with writing. Right. They're good at right? it. Right. Uh, and I started out, just a bit of background, I started college as a math major and got bored. And <laughs> English did not come easy to me. Writing was always a struggle. I didn't know what diction was until I started teaching English, like uh, like six or seven years in, right? When I finally dawned on me, that's what that is, right? And so I think ask and analyze means take your content area and figure out what comes natural to you and then reverse the process. Almost like what great chefs do when they, what is the term, um, when they deconstruct a meal. Oh, right? where it's the, the taste, but it's not the right texture. Or it's the thing because they yes. built it into so many new things. Right. And I think as teachers in our content areas, we need to deconstruct the information mm-hmm. because for us, it does come easy. For us, it, it is natural. And our students, we're assuming that it should be as easy for them, but it's not natural for them. Well, and the thing is, there is a process going on in our heads. And there are steps that we're taking. But like you mentioned in a previous episode, we are unconsciously doing it. Oh, yes. And we need to consciously become aware of what we're doing so that we can teach it to kids. And I used to tell my kids, just because you don't know the answer right away doesn't matter we can look at the steps that somebody else took to be successful at this, and I can teach you how to do those steps so you can be successful too. Right, and I'll tell you, the person who really opened my eyes to this in writing was um, Justin Wilson-Gabor. And Justin was fascinating because when we're talking about teaching writing and even teaching reading and breaking it down to pieces, he said, Sylvia... You understand the scaffolding needed and the steps needed, but your steps are from a middle-class mindset. Mm-hmm. You need to step down to poverty and to our struggling students and take it from their perspective. And so he showed me another way to take that, that writing structure and scaffold it even further down mm-hmm. to meet our students where they are, right? So even though that's not creative because it's not like I'm dressing up or jumping around the room, yeah. it's creative because it took a structure that I thought I had done really well and took it even bit more basic, well, not to dummy things down, but to put yeah. it in a, a level that kids can understand to build them back up. Yeah. They can't jump to step three and then climb four, five, six, seven, eight to get to the top. You have to start them where they are. If they're on right. the ground, that's where you start. And that is creative because it's giving you Correct. a whole other mindset and a different way of looking at the problem. And I think it's a different way of looking at that word creative. So the second half of his six words was you're creative. Mm-hmm. And I thought, um, I loved his um, righteous anger that he put <laughs> towards that, right? Like, wait, you're excusing all the hard work I did mm-hmm. by saying it's just because of who I am. Or, and or you're saying that you're excused from the hard work because if you are not creative, then you don't have to cre- create lessons that are memorable for your students. Right. And I think that I love that righteous indignation that happens there. Because it was a A, I've put in an awful lot of work to be this. And B, you needed to put in the same amount of work in your classroom. Right. Don't just say that you should be able to do it easily. It's not easy for me. And at the same time, it's like some of the really difficult, like unit planning things that we do with tiering of lessons for differentiation and some of the understanding by design where you integrate multiple contents. And those take a lot of planning and effort. And right. you teach them to teachers, and they're like, yeah, that's cool, but 
I mean, that's easy for you. You've done this for years. And I said, "Uh uh-huh. You know what? The first year I did it, I did it once. Right. And then once I really liked that lesson, because I taught it a few times and tweeted, then I made another one. Now I'm to the point where I have seven of them, and I can sprinkle them throughout the year, and it's okay. Right. But I started with one. Start. Exactly. And I think that on page 41 is where he really gets to the heart of this issue. Uh, education can be used to uplift and inspire, or it can be used as a hammer to bludgeon and be down. We must collectively agree. I like that collectively because that mm-hmm. means all of us. Agree. Educating the next generation is worth the time and effort that our students deserve to be uplifted and inspired. Our students deserve it. Yes. If I wouldn't put my own kid through that lesson or that class, then I shouldn't teach it to anybody else's. Right. And I love the last part that creativity is not the possession of some special class of artistic individuals, <laughs> but it is rather something that can be nurtured and developed in all of us, including your students. So I love the fact that he kind of starts with this idea that it's not about whether or not I'm creative. It's a process. That it's, yes. it's a set of steps that we all can go through. And then he goes through the rest of the chapter Walking us through that step. This goes back to that Clint Smith quote, too. Excellence is not an act, but a habit, so you better act like you have it. Yes. And actually, the first part of that is Aristotle. But what he's saying here is so true. So I'm a person who plays piano and who sings and who really likes music and learns the words to everything. But I Me must too. Confess, Maybe that's why we get along so well. I must confess that I was tone deaf. And a terrible singer originally. And my mom, when I was in, when I was maybe 10 and she realized how much I really loved singing and was not going to stop, asked me if I wanted to do voice lessons. And I was so excited that she thought I was good enough for that. And she just wanted me to not be terrible. But through the practice of going every week to voice lessons, of going every week to piano lessons, and of picking up a flute in band, because from a middle-class background, I was fortunate enough to have these opportunities. By the time I hit the middle of seventh grade, people were tuning their instruments and band around me, and for the first time, I heard dissonance. It was the first time I'd ever heard it. And I was like, that's what that is. (gasps) Oh, I need to. And suddenly, I was able to take a leap and get a lot better at a lot of those things, and my mom wasn't constantly reminding me that I needed to look at my key signature when I was practicing piano because I was missing sharps and flats and I just thought I was fine. It was the practice that tuned my ear and made me a better musician. And then that happened to me again later in life. My daughter has faith in me and therefore I can do more things. She doesn't know that I was never a good artist. She doesn't know that that's a thing that people are or aren't. So we're drawing with sidewalk chalk and she, you know, I draw a heart and I write her name and she says, Mommy, draw Woody from Toy Story. Huh? (laughs) Like, I can't, who do you think I, so we start, I was like, well, why don't we draw, I think the first I was like, well, let's draw a cartoon character. Mommy's not sure yet about Woody. I'd have to, why don't we, so I would look up cartoon cat, cartoon cow, cartoon, and when breaking the cartoon shape, the cartoon characters down to their shapes, I started to be able to copy more, and not that long ago, my husband looked at what I was drawing for my daughter and was like, I didn't know you could draw, and I was like, oh, I can't draw, I can just copy. He's like, no, (laughs) you can draw, I can't do that. It all comes down to geometric shapes, I've discovered. (laughs) It's practice is what it came down to. Well, and so I think we start working through the book now. Mm -hmm. Um, The real law of attraction, he says, at the bottom of 43, is to create a vision of what you want, define the goals, 
and then start working for them, right? So you're, let's go back to your music analogy. You wanted to learn how to sing really well, and <laughs> you had a vision of what you wanted, and you defined your goal, and so then you start working on them by involving yourself in musical habits and musical practices. And I actually took the time to practice between the right. lessons, and I, you know, I put in the hard work, and suddenly it paid off. Right, and so on page 44, he says, commit, start working, then be open. So I think the message to teachers here is that if you want to have inspiring lessons... If you want to be an unforgettable teacher, stealing Chuck Poole's lang- language there, then commit to it. Mm-hmm. Work on it. But be open to that feedback. Be open to failure. Try, fail, adjust. Try, fail, adjust. Lather, rinse, repeat. And I, and I just think that process, uh, which leads into the next section, failure versus feedback. When I wanted to become an inspiring teacher, I started doing things like videotaping my lessons and sending them out mm-hmm. applying for national board which required me to videotape my lessons and have other teachers look at me teaching it requires me to have coaches come into my room and give me feedback it requires me allowing not just allowing the administrator to come do my formal observation or informals but embracing the idea that they're going to give me something that I can use to improve my pedagogy or my practice. It requires analysis of what you've done and re- true reflection on it that uses that analysis. Mm. And it requires you asking questions about what just happened, which is why you had to have the video evidence of it in Correct. order to do this. And, you know, what you said there about him um, with the law of attraction and... It also pointed me to page 45, Mm -hmm. right before designing a system to capture ideas. Your thoughts are magical and have the power to manifest your dreams, but not without your active participation in the process. So A, there's this work, but it is magical. It is something that if I visualize it, I can work towards it because I have that power of commitment. And of course, the book nerd in me is reminded of Words are, in my not-so-humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic, capable of both inflicting injury and remedying it. Albus Dumbledore. Mm, Harry Potter. Harry Potter connection. Yes, of course. Uh, but <laughs> words are magic. Right. What we say matters, and, if, and what we say and promise to ourselves matters even more. Well, so I, I think this is interesting. I had a vision of um, authoring a book, and that's it's in the future somewhere. And um, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> my friend Mark Barnes said... Uh, Instead of looking at what I want to do, he goes, what do you want to share with the world? Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, that means I need to have some original thoughts. right. So I thought, okay, so that's the first thing I needed to know. I needed that step. And then I went to my friend Dean Ganey who wrote a book, um, The Why and You, um, which is another one we're probably going to talk through one day. And he said, Sylvia, it's a process. How do you think that book came to be? I just created a post-it note on my computer and started collecting a list of my original ideas. So I went, oh, now I have a process. Mm-hmm. So on my computer, I have a post-it note that says original ideas. And some of them I think I should scrap, and yet I don't scrap them yet because one day you never know where they're going to come up with. I think the process... And that's what he says here, yes. too, on page 47 at the bottom. Capturing your thoughts validates their worth. Mm. It sends a subtle but powerful message to your subconscious that effort spent on idea generation won't be squandered. And I think that's powerful to our students as well. Right. I think that, as he mentions in immersion, 
that he needed to be in the lesson and that they liked listening to his thoughts and whatnot, that they were capturing those during the movie. If we listen to our students in their conversations as they're working and we react to what they say and call that back Mm -hmm. in the next lesson and make reference to things that they have mentioned, that is powerful for your kids because it tells them that their ideas are worthwhile. Yeah, there's so much. He's got the creative alchemy, Mm -hmm. which is just an idea of some lessons that he's done and how his lessons have transformed over the years. The failure versus feedback was where the lather, rinse, repeat thing is. But I love also the idea, he says... Kids are always giving you feedback. (laughs) Right. And he says, try to evaluate and learn from that feedback without taking it too personally. I know that getting evaluated or, you know, on an observation of a lesson is often um, personal because we are all personally invested in our classrooms. Because this is my work and I've put this I've put work into this. Correct. And mm-hmm. I care about my students, right? So I think the idea here is how can we make that process valuable? And I think it's okay to grieve, right? Yeah. Like um, everybody else often associates grief with death, but grieve I can grieve the loss of. So if I felt like a lesson should have gone well that didn't, mm-hmm. I need to quickly grieve that process so that I can get to the feedback, mm-hmm. so I can get to the reflection, right? Because if we take all feedback personally, our students are going to follow our example. Well, that's like... Right? And so I think, I think we need to model for them the process. Yes, personally, that hurt. Now, I'm over the personal hurt, what did they really tell me? Oh, I could this instead. Or I could have, or, you know. Oh, I love this period in history, and I could lecture about it for days, so I'm going to. And my kids are asleep. Guess what? That's not personal, and it's not a personal insult that they hate what I love. It's just they're teenagers, and it is hard to listen for 50 minutes on end without being asked a question because my teacher's so in love with the topic. If you're not engaging me, then yeah, I tune out even if it is interesting. And it is a a kid and a teenager. Like their role in life is to figure out who they are and to try to stand on their own two feet. And often they do that by trying to push at the limits we impose. They try to, they they push against all of our rules to see which ones they're allowed to break in order to know what they can and can't do and where they can have autonomy and where they can decide for themselves. That's not a personal attack on me. It's them trying to figure out who they are. It is my job as an adult in the room to enforce the important boundaries. Right. But it's not personal. The way I chose to respond to it shapes our future rapport if what i do is go scream at them right and i think that's rapport so back to ask and analyze i think the the message here is kind of ask yourself how creative or how effective do you want to be Mm -hmm. analyze the results well when we analyze we have to be willing to accept the feedback Mm -hmm. and i think the best reminder for me is that how i respond to the feedback of my leadership is how my students will respond to the feedback I provide them, right? Because you're a model. I'm the model. So I think that it's okay to grieve the the feedback you're given, but try, fail, fail, adjust. Not try, succeed, adjust, but try, fail, adjust. At one point, we had a motto that, that, that was spun that failure is not an option. And they didn't like that. So they've changed it to success is the only option, right? And I understood the 
the philosophy behind those because we want our kids to succeed. I love the shift in society now where failure is not only a, an option, it's encouraged. And it's a learning opportunity. It's a learning opportunity. It's, um, what's the poster say? First attempt in learning fail. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we are trying, failing, adjusting, trying, failing, adjusting, then we are embracing this pirate philosophy mm-hmm. of improving our practice. And of being lifelong learners. So, so our call to correction. action this week, um, he, all, he says very early on in the chapter, the types of questions we ask ourselves determine the types of answers that we receive. I think we need to look at a lesson or a philosophy, or the typical thing that happens in your year. And I think we need to start asking ourselves different questions. If we want to have more engaging lessons, then we need to start asking questions about, at what point in this lesson can I get students engaged? At what point can I get students discussing? Where's the best point to get them up and moving? Uh, Where's the best place to give this lesson on campus? What's one thing I could write on my board that would spark conversation before I even start the lesson? We need to start asking ourselves those questions. So tell us, what lesson are you thinking about? What questions are you asking? What new answers do you come to? And how will you respond to the feedback you're given? Mm-hmm. Those are great questions to ask and analyze. Absolutely. I look forward to hearing from everybody. You can do that through leaving us a two-minute or less voicemail at ctechpodcasts at gmail.com. Again, just an audio recording on your phone. Or through our Twitter slow chat with the hashtag ctechpodcast. The question is up all week. Or if you're behind... Go back and find the one from previous weeks and tell us your stories. We'd love to hear from you.